Now, I am really excited about this section of scriptures to come to the end uh, of Ezekiel. And uh, if you've ever looked at the end of Ezekiel, it's, it's somewhat staggering the amazing amount of detail there is. Uh, eight chapters here from chapter 40 to chapter 48 about uh, this new temple that is, is ultimately promised. Uh, but to begin to understand a little bit about what this is doing, we need to kind of take a step back and uh, get our context of what we have been seeing really since chapter 34. And since chapter 34, I've called this part of Ezekiel the idea of when the Spirit comes. And what we've been seeing in these final chapters is how God is going to restore the things that have been lost because of the people's sins. For example, we saw in chapter 34 that the people had bad shepherds and they've lost their kings because of their sins. But God is going to send them a new shepherd who is going to be their king and he is going to lead them and in fact establish a covenant of peace with the people in chapters 35 and in chapter 36, you read about the people. They've lost their inheritance because of their sins, but now they're going to receive the promised glorious eternal inheritance that God had in mind from the very beginning. And so though they had been kicked off the land, though we're now that remember Ezekiel and the people are in Babylon in captivity, here is God saying, I'm going to restore the inheritance. I'm going to maintain that covenant promise. In chapter 36, we know that the people have been rebellious against God's law and against his ways. And yet chapter 36 made a promise. And my people are going to have a new heart and a new spirit so that they're not going to be rebellious. They're not going to be stubborn any longer, but they're going to keep my word and obey my command. So a restoration of who the people ultimately are supposed to be. In chapter 37, we know the people have been separated from God because of their sins. And chapter 37 comes along and says, yes, though you are spiritually dead in your sins, I'm going to raise you up and make you alive and you are going to become my mighty nation yet again. And so new life is being restored to the people of God. And even in chapters 38 and 39, where we see that the people have been taken off of the land because of the Babylonian invasion and the restoration promise that God has now made, is that rather than me coming against you and wiping you out, nations are going to rise against you, but I'm going to use that to wipe them out. And I am going to stand for my people and judge them when they come against me and become against my people. Now that puts us, I think, to an interesting location. Because God has been talking about all the things that are going to be restored that has been lost because of sin and because of the captivity. And there is one final thing now that needs to be restored. And what needs to be restored is the temple. The temple has been destroyed by the Babylonians. And this is the final piece of the puzzle of what God must now say here. I'm going to restore the temple as well. But in talking about this new temple for all the world, we need to talk a little bit about how we should read this and how we should look at what's being stated here. And I'm going to submit to you for a number of reasons that we should not read Ezekiel 40 through 48 as instructions for some literal physical temple to be built in 
Jerusalem. Let me give you just three reasons why I think we have to read the text in that light rather than as a future temple yet to be built, sometime still yet to come. Number one, and I really do think this is my strongest point in, in all of this, is it is fascinating to think about that no one, no one in the scriptures read Ezekiel 40 through 48 in that way. Now, here's what I mean. When the people come back to the land and Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah are all about rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city and rebuilding the walls, no one says, let's read Ezekiel 40 through 48 and let's build that temple. Which if that was what the intent of the text was, then why wouldn't you? If Ezekiel is having a vision of here's what the physical new temple will be when my people are restored back in the land, then why didn't Zerubbabel build that temple? Why didn't Haggai and Zechariah as the prophets in that day and time run around saying, look to Ezekiel's prophecy as the answer for what this temple is supposed to be? I submit to you that none of the people of God in those days read this text that way. And I think there's a really good reason why, which is the second point I want to make, is that when you read chapters 40 through 48, there are no instructions. There are no directions on how to build this thing. It is just God giving directions about what this looks like, but not directions on, well, how do you build it? Key dimensions and key information is missing, most notably it doesn't tell you how high the temple is supposed to be. There's no dimension on where does this thing stop. It doesn't tell us what the construction materials are supposed to be made out of. It doesn't tell us how they are supposed to build the temple. And it doesn't even tell us how to deal with the temple design because this building would not fit on the temple mount in Jerusalem as is. And I think they understood that. They looked at this and read it and went, well, this isn't something for us to build. There's no instructions. There's no directions. There's no how high should it be. There's no construction materials or anything of the like, like you read about when it comes to the temple and the uh, tabernacle construction in the days of Moses and Solomon. And number three, it lacks really important details if this is supposed to be a physical temple. For example, it does not have a laver. It does not have the table of showbread. It does not have the lampstand. It does not have the altar of incense. It does not have a veil. It does not have the Ark of the Covenant. It does not have the courtyard of the Gentiles or the courtyard of the women. It is lacking all kinds of really critical data if we're going to have a physical temple reconstructed in Jerusalem. And so I want us to read this as a symbol because clearly that's what the people in the restoration did. That's how Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah and the people of the first century must have understood these pieces. Because even in the first century, you don't have anybody saying, I know Herod's building this temple and beautifying it, but we need to tear it down and make it like Ezekiel's. Nobody has that in mind. So rather, what I think you're supposed to do with this vision is read it in contrast to the prior. What you're going to see in these chapters is really a, a beautiful teaching of God showing a contrast in regards to 
what the new temple will look like to the old temple that was destroyed before. And I submit to you that also fits the context. We talked about in Ezekiel chapters 34 through 39, you can go through that and see there's all kinds of contrast. You had false shepherds. I'm going to give you the true shepherds. You had bad kings. I'm going to give you good kings. I'm going to give you David, in fact, as the good king. You had hearts of stone. I'm going to give you hearts of flesh. The worldly nations destroyed you. Now I'm going to destroy them. Everything in this section has been all about here's the way things used to be, but here's the way I'm going to make it when the Spirit comes, when the Messiah comes. And I think that's the main key to read in this. Now, I will not read chapters 40, 41, 42, and 43 as much as I would like to, but there's only so much time in being able to do a lesson. But to give us a little bit of an overview about how these chapters unfold, as you start reading from chapter 40 through chapter 42, what you will notice is, is Ezekiel is somewhat given a tour by, by God. That here you have the Lord saying, I'm going to show you in this vision, this new temple. And he starts really from the outside courtyards and begins to move his way in until you get into the temple in the, in the very center. And so I would sum up 40, 41, and 42 is simply Ezekiel noting the beauty of what this courtyard and what the walls and what the temple are going to look like when the Spirit comes. But the thing that I think is most important is to notice the purpose of what God is doing in this vision. If you have your Bibles, go over to Ezekiel chapter 43. And I think Ezekiel 43 is a big key to all of this. And so we're going to spend our time in Ezekiel 43. And I want to go ahead and jump down to verse 10, just so that you can get a sense of the clear stated purpose of why God has all of these details and all of these pictures about this new temple that he has in store. Notice Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 10, it reads, As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel so that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Let them measure its pattern and they will be ashamed of all that they have done. Notice the vision is not, Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel so that they may build this someday in the future. It is, I want you to write down all the details and notice the curiosity so that this will make them ashamed of their sins. It will cause them to be convicted. And so what a purpose that is being put forward. Now, I hope that you're thinking about that purpose for a minute. How are all the details and all of the design of this temple supposed to convict people of their sins? I don't know on a surface level reading, you read Ezekiel 40 through 48, and I got to the end and said, wow, I'm a sinner. And yet God says, that's why this is here. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, how is that supposed to do this? If that's God's intent, that Ezekiel is seeing all this vision, writing it all down, and then is supposed to tell the house of Israel, here's the plan, here's the pattern, here's what the temple is going to be like, so that the people are ashamed. Well, then how do those details 
do that. All right, I hope you hold that in your mind, and we'll answer that in just a minute. Back up to the beginning of chapter 43. And I want you to notice how this all comes about as we start moving to the important part of the temple. In chapter 43, and you'll notice in verse 1, it says, And he led me to the gate, uh, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. I want you to get a sense of what now Ezekiel sees. While all of these details have been given about here is the the glory and beauty of this temple, something fascinating happens at this point in the record of the temple. It says there that the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. Now, you know what to visualize when you read that. Notice verse 3 tells you what he's talking about. Verse 3, and the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kibar Canal, and I fell on my face. What is Ezekiel seeing? He's seeing chapter 1. In chapter 1, when we studied that many weeks ago, and we were like, how do you even get a visual of this thing? It is this overwhelming, stunning picture of wheels and wheels and eyes all around and the whole throne room is moving straight and it never turns and yet it can go every direction. It's just the stunning vision of the glory of God. And you will notice that verse 3 is telling us that's what I'm seeing right now. I am seeing the full-blown glory of God returning. In fact, I want you to notice that verse 2 said that this was going to come from the east. And then in verses 4 and 5, you read, And the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, why is this so important? The reason why this is so important is remember back in chapter 10 that there was a vision of the glory of God leaving that temple. That was a monumental picture where God is indicating, I'm not with my people anymore. I am not in this temple anymore. They are being turned over for their sins and God is allowing them to be judged because their sins have caused them to be severed from God. The relationship is over and he not only moves out of the temple, but he moves out of the city and he moves to the east and he goes to the the mount east of the city. And that is then the indication that the city and the temple are going to fall. And that's exactly what's set forward here in this in this amazing scene that is before us is that God is giving a picture of restoration, the glory of the Lord is going to come from the east and come back to this city and come back to this temple and fill it with its glory again. I always, as an aside, have to note with you, it is always fascinating to read that when Zerubbabel's temple is finished, as you read the book of Ezra, it never says that the glory of the Lord filled that temple. 
Unlike Solomon, when Solomon's temple was completed, we're told the glory of the Lord filled that. When the tabernacle that Moses and Aaron have constructed is completed, the glory of the Lord fills that tabernacle. But when they come back and they are restored to the land after the Babylonian captivity and Zerubbabel builds that temple, it never says the glory of the Lord had returned. There is like this anticipation and waiting and it didn't happen. And here is God making a promise, though, that glory is going to return. And you see the significance of that. The verse six of chapter 43, while the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. Where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. I want you to see the picture that here God says, I am going to restore my throne, restore my glory. And this is going to be the place where I am going to live with my people forever. Now, one of the things that I want you to think about that would have been striking about what God is saying is up to this point in the book of Ezekiel, God has communicated that the sinning of the people is so severe that he couldn't live with them anymore. That's why the temple's destroyed. That's why the glory of God leaves. That's why Jerusalem is taken to the ground. That's why the people are sent into captivity. But here is this amazing promise with this temple vision. One day, the glory of the Lord's going to come from the east. And he's going to come to his temple and he's going to fill it with God's glory. All right, let's roll forward a little bit. Go over to Matthew chapter 21. Turn over to Matthew chapter 21. All three of the synoptic gospels record this event, but we will look at it from Matthew's point of view. If you look at Matthew 21 and you take a moment to scan your eyes over the text, perhaps your Bible even has headers to give you an indication of what we're talking about. You'll notice that chapter 21 is a record of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You will notice in verse 7 that they bring the, the donkey and they set him on it with their cloaks. And remember what you see in verse 9, as the crowds, as they went before him and they followed him, were all shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What a scene that must have been. I'm having to steal a little thunder of a future Matthew lesson that we're approaching here. But I mean, what a scene of the glory of Jesus at this moment, that the crowds are shouting, here he comes, this is the one we've been waiting for. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I want you to notice something interesting, a a detail that is easy to run by, but all three of the synoptics pointed out in verse 1 of Matthew Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verse 1. And it says there, when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sent his two disciples to go get the donkey. Notice that he's going to come from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. Now, I'll show you a map in a second, but I'll tell it to you before we get there. The Mount of Olives is directly east 
from the temple complex. Here you can see our temple complex. I know you may not be able to read the writing, but your temple is there. And directly to the east of there is the Mount of Olives. And all three accounts show Jesus when he finally comes in this triumphal scene, when he is coming for the final time to Jerusalem, when he's ready to come and lay down his life. He doesn't come from the south or the north or the west. He comes from the Mount of Olives directly east from that temple and begins to come to that. And what do you know in the text is that he's going to go directly to that very temple, proclaim its woes upon it, and proclaim the judgment that is ultimately to come against the physical nation and the physical temple. You are seeing a stunning picture of prophecy that the glory of the Lord was going to return to that temple. And when Jesus comes for his final time to lay down his life in Jerusalem, this is exactly where he comes from. He comes from the east. He comes from the Mount of Olives. And it is not by accident that why the New Testament, particularly the Gospel of John, wants to highlight to us over and over and over again. When you see Jesus, you are seeing the glory of the Lord. John 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Just a few weeks ago, you might remember we did the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is transformed. And Peter writes in his letter, we saw his majesty and glory and honor on that mountain. We saw the glory of the Lord in him at that time. And here is John making the same point. The movements of Jesus is the glory of the Lord moving to Jerusalem itself. So here's what I want us to observe in thinking about this. Though the people had rejected God, the Lord had made a promise that he would return and that he would return with glory and that this would be the place of his throne. This would be the place where his feet would walk is what chapter 43 and verse 7 says. This would be the place where the Lord's feet would walk. And just imagine that, that the glory of the Lord for years walked among the people and lived among the people and showed the glory of the Lord to everyone who would see him with the proper eyes and hear what his teachings and follow what he had to say. This is where God would live with his people. I thought Edmund Clowney said it well, so I just will quote him in this rather than ripping him off. He simply said, It is not so much that Christ fulfills what the temple means, but rather Christ is the meaning for which the temple existed. And that's it. This, all of this was trying to point to the truth of who Jesus was, trying to give us the important sense that he is the ultimate meaning of this temple vision. This is what Ezekiel is ultimately hoping for. And thus the temple would be then filled with the glory of God. Now I asked you a little bit earlier. How are these chapters supposed to accomplish what God said is supposed to accomplish? That is the people will be convicted of their sins. 
and be ashamed of what they what they've done. And somehow the glory of the Lord is supposed to do that. But when we are able to see the glory of the Lord on display in Christ. How can you not be amazed, stunned, and then ashamed of sins? Because what God did in bringing his glory back to his people is far more mind-blowing than I think we ever could have hoped for. Because here is Ezekiel having a vision of, oh, there's going to be a future glorious temple where God's going to restore his relationship with his people. Forgiveness of sins is going to come. God is going to meet his people at that place again. He will be their God and they will be his people. All the blessings are going to be restored. A new covenant is going to be enacted. God himself is going to walk amongst his people and he will be with them forever. And it all was talking about when Christ came. That rather than it being a building. Jesus starts walking around and saying. I'm the temple. And forgiveness is in me. And you can access God through me. You can find forgiveness through me. And you can have a new covenant through me. And you can get to know the father through me. As Jesus would even have to say to his own disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, you've seen the glory of God in full display and seeing how God was going to accomplish this new temple with glory being his own son was supposed to cause the people to be absolutely stunned and ashamed of their sins. Now, I think this is the very idea that we'll end on that the Apostle Paul said. Listen to how the Apostle Paul worded it. He said to the Corinthians in chapter 2 and verse 7, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Here's this picture of how no one understood what the gospel was going to be, that God had to reveal how the salvation would come. How was God going to save the world? How would he reconcile people to himself? How would he tear down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile? This We are imparting the secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And Paul is saying, if we understood who Jesus was, it would change everything about how you live. If you saw him as the Lord of glory, who has come back to be with his people, then we would be ashamed of our sins and convicted for what we've done and turn and serve him with all of our heart. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a stunning vision. What an amazing vision of the glory of your temple as seen in Jesus. That you would choose to come and live with your people again, even though they were rebellious, even though we're full of sin. That you would choose to come back to take on the form of a human and be the place 
where we could find atonement and find restoration and find healing and hope that we could enjoy a new covenant with you so that we could enjoy eternity with you. Thank you for this glorious temple, the final piece of what we needed to be restored back to you, the place where we could come to meet you in your very son. Lord, thank you for giving your son. And may we see in your son, the Lord of glory, crucified for us because of our sins so that we could enjoy forgiveness and eternity with you. Thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing an invitation song, and we invite you to come to the Lord of glory, to see Jesus as the true living temple who came to this world to be the place where you could have sin resolved and have a new relationship with your God. And I hope that you'll just soak in the pictures of those temple images that are found in those chapters. And through those details, just be in awe of how God was saying, yeah, one day down the road, I'm going to give you something so amazing and so glorious that you'll want to turn to me with all of your heart. And we invite you to do that tonight. Can we help you in any way? Won't you come now? Won't we stand and while we sing?